Hi, I'm Don Shikolik. Uh, the Sister Ignatia group is my home group in Cleveland, and I've been there 30, we started that group 35 years ago, and my sobriety date, pay attention now for you people, without a drink in between, or a pill, or any mind-altering drugs, or any counseling, my sobriety date is August 31st, 1961. Now you can take that one to the bank. I don't know which one of these is working, but I don't say that to impress you. It impresses the hell out of me. And for you people who have a little bit of time, I want to tell you, my sponsor who's got 51 years, we 52 next week. Uh, he's got, and we're, we just finally got our first pension check out of New York. Anybody with over 40 years gets a check for the rest of their life. If they haven't drank, so. you, just, you can't come and drink in between meetings. It don't work. It says, rarely have we seen a person fail who 30 drank in between meetings get sober. That's about bottom line. But, you know, I want to open this meeting with the Serenity Prayer before I... Let me say this while we got statistics. I'm, I'll be 78 years old in February. I'm a young man in an old container, and I just about heard last week I was watching television with this guy at the race car in Viagra, and I thought that that was the name of the race car. They told me different. <laughs> you know, I, I like to laugh, and... And before... There's a part in the book that says... There's a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot be failed to keep a man everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. I, I first want to say I want to thank those people who come here from Cleveland, so if I get a little radical, that I got 30 people in here that for just from Cleveland area can back me up, and I got people from Louisville, and I got people from Kentucky, I got people from Dayton, so listen to the old man. <laughs> I, uh... I just want to say, uh, let's open a meeting with the Serenity Prayer. I didn't do that yet, did I? No. I got I, I have seen your moments, so just hang in there. Uh, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Now, this is the part that we should put on behind that. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships in the pathway to peace, taking as he did in the sinful world it is not, and not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and serenely happy with him forever. Amen. Part of that I'll talk about later on, played a very important part in my life. Uh, I want to just say this. I, uh, I've been married a few times, and after I heard Pauline, it reminds me the, the day I wanted to go to Hawaii, you see, and I don't want to fly because of all this 9-11, you know. So I was laying on the beach in Cleveland, uh, in a health club in Cleveland thinking, and all of a sudden, a genie come by. And the genie said, you got one wish. What would you like to have? I said, well, you know, I want to go to Hawaii so bad. I've been there three times, but now I can't fly because these planes will make me crazy. And she said, okay, give me what your wish is. I said, well, I'd like to get over to Hawaii, but I'd like to have a bridge built so that I can drive over there. And the genie said, well, he said, you know, that's a pretty big job. We've got to drive pylons down underneath the ocean. We've got a long way to put this bridge, and that's expensive, and I don't think we can do it. So I said, well, let me do She said, you got one more wish. What would you like? I said, I've been married four times. I don't understand women. Don't understand what the hell they think about, how they behave, don't know nothing about it. And the genie said, do you want a two-lane or four-lane highway? Go know. You know, while we were coming up here, I go over here, we're laughing a little bit, because we get serious after a while. But I got time, because she had an hour and a half, and I was ran upstairs, I did, couldn't shave, didn't do nothing, 
Couldn't find my belt that Ron brought down for me, so if my pants fall, just hang in there. <laughs> I found the belt, Ron. Thank you. Anyhow, we're, we're pulling into a, a rest area, and a cop has got this car pulled over with the flashers going, so we happened to park next to it. He said to the guy, he said, what are you doing? He said, you've been weaving all over that interstate. And the guy said, well, he says, I'm a minister, and I've been practicing my speech. And the guy said, well, he said, you know, your weaving is very dangerous, and God is not driving your car. He said, well, I'm sorry. He said, I forgot. I was just not thinking. So he said, all right, keep on going now. He said, drive carefully and don't weave and don't practice your speech, your sermon. So he's got to start to pull away, put the car in gear and the sharp. Said, hey, just a minute, young man, minister. She said, what's in that brown paper bag? He said, water, because I get thirsty when I'm talking to myself. And he said, well, let me see the bag. So the sheriff picks up the car bag and puts it to his mouth. And he said, my God, this is wine. He, the minister says, oh, my God, he done it again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, is that in here? I'm old. I lose my voice. But, you know, I'm, uh, I'm very grateful to be here. I thank Pat and them for asking me. Thank everybody who came down. And uh, it's just great to be here. It really is. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know if you know it. I'm excited. When I come up to a leader meeting, I'm excited because I say things that may not be you here. I say things that happen. See, I got when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous in 1961, maybe 75 to 80 people of the original first 150 out of Cleveland were still alive. And I want to tell you something. We had Alcoholics Anonymous as it would be, should be, and could be if we behaved. And I say that without any reservation. I don't know where we got these. We got a lot of things in AA that don't belong here today. See, somebody talked about them. Who was it? Mickey or Bev? You know, I don't understand what's happening in these meetings. I don't understand why people can't be on time. Promptness is a virtue. Take that one to the bank with you. They can't. They're rushing here, rushing there. Some people can't wait 20 minutes to eat. They're going to starve to death, you know. Some people can't stand a 20-minute lead. Sit down. Hang on. Get your seatbelts on. I got a guy here 19 years sober last month. Where you at, little Richie? Right there. Little Richie and I stayed at a meeting one night when a guy talked for two and a half hours. His name was Ed Andy, came into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1933 with the Oxford group and went over to South America with Mark Hanna to see if they could carry this Oxford group there. And we stood outside on a stairwell like this on the outside of the second floor building he was talking. And we were there two and a half hours. He stood there, his father stood there, and a couple other guys stood there. And nobody got drunk. I've never seen people get drunk from going to too many meetings. And I don't know where I'm at and where I'm going to go with this thing, because I've got a problem. <laughs> I had a rush so bad, I was going to take a nap for about 20 minutes, you know. But I, I, I put to go come here, and I'm going to tell you, I was a young man when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't know if I told you I'm a young man in an old container. But I was young when I got here. I was not that young, but I never drank. See, I don't know about these people who take a drink at six months or six, a month a year, and they're 15 or 13 years old, and they chase that drink for the rest of their life. They became an instant alcoholic. There are no instant alcoholics. If you read the doctor's opinion, it tells you it's a process. We cross through that place. What we become, and we cross that invisible line when your body can't tolerate alcohol any longer, and the more you put into it, the worse it gets. Alcohol was never my problem. Alcohol was my solution. It allowed me to do things I didn't want to do and justify it. It made me feel comfortable. I'll tell you, I got to start someplace. I start at the beginning. 
I was 17 years old when they declared war in December 7, 1942. I know a lot of you people weren't around then. But they declared war, and I thought I'd never see that army. I thought Japan was made of grass huts, and we were going to burn them out in a couple of weeks. And I had problems with authority all my life. I had troubles in school. I had troubles with the cop on the corner. And one thing about Italians, we don't like to take orders. We don't like it, really. And, you know, I, uh, I decided in, Mar in February, I'd, on my birthday, I joined the United States Army. And when I got to Camp Perry, I realized I made a grave mistake. Man, they were nasty, shouting at you and everything. So I made a decision then that I wasn't going to take this crap. And on the third day, I went over the hill for the first time. Now, I'm going to take you through this brilliant Army career, because I'll sum it up this way. This is a nice kid that didn't drink yet, now get that through your head. But a lot of character defects, and that's what we inventory when we take our inventory, character defects. We have ne I've never inventoried vodka. Here's the first guy in 30-some years I've been speaking around the country. Mike here is the first guy I ever heard drinking slow gin fizz, creamy top slow gin fizz. First guy, honest to God. You'll hear about that in my story later on. You, you had to be sick, buddy. <laughs> Didn't do for you what it did for me. But anyhow, I, I, I came home for the first time, and my dad didn't like the idea. I was only in the Army three days, and I had a furlough already. But he didn't understand it. When they came and get me, then he understood. <laughs> the MPs came to my house. And it was not a thing, but I had 15 summaries, two generals, was sent to the federal penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas, to do two years and get a dishonorable discharge. This kid only drank one time in the Army. That happened in 1993. Seven, well, 1943. What am I doing? 93. Anyhow, when the night I drank, I went to town, and I wanted to dance. And I knew alcohol was a social lubricant. I heard that, you know. So I found a girl up there by Gonorrhea Gulch. She was right outside the post. <laughs> and I, I, I took her to Joplin, Missouri with me, and we had a package store town. Somebody talked about package store towns. You bought alcohol in a room on the side, and then you came into a big room like this, and you danced. And, you know, and I didn't know, there was no alcohol. The war had started. See, they took the whiskey off the market. So I said to this guy, what do you got to make a girl sexy? And he said, I got old Mr. Boston creamy top slow gin. <laughs> and I looked like wine. I thought it take, like, tasted like uh, Dr. Pepper or something. I forget what we had at that time. So, and I said, well, give me two bottles, because I knew my dad could drink a bottle of wine. And, uh... When we start dancing, now I tell you, you watch the dance tonight here. Some of these guys will not touch a girl if they're on that dance floor all night long. They're just out there doing this shit, you know. <laughs> and I mean that's doing some shit, man. <laughs> and you know, if you want to know what life was like in my era, you watch AMC. You know, and I still watch Gary Grant. And I, I the other day, uh, uh, when he took that romance, he was on that cruise ship with that girl, and they were going to meet at the top of the terminal house. I forget the name of the movie now. I saw it so many times. A fair to remember. Thank you, Lynn. I just saw it the other day. And you know, when we danced, we ha we knew what we had. You had a girl in your arms. You could feel it. You know what I mean? Nothing to this shit. You know. The lights are flashing. You don't know what you got. You've missed the whole boat. And we had a girl in our arms, and you could hold them and feel what was there, and you could sort of dip them a little bit. You know, bend them down to the floor in between, and then dip on sip on some gin. So we were sipping and dipping, just sipping and dipping. And we kept on sipping and dipping until 11.30. And she hasn't got the program yet. I got it. Man, I'm in full force going. 
And all of a sudden, I remember what they told me on the corner. We got one more bottle of gin to go through. And I remember a guy, every corner Italian neighborhood, was all, we were all Italians right there. I mean, a lot of all Italians. When I went to the Army, we went 224 out of one area, neighborhood. They wanted to clean us out. But anyhow, I'm there, now I got to think. And you know, we got a great computer up here in our head. There's things you're going to remember 10 years from now. You may remember one thing I say today, even if it's what I say crap, you know, or something like that. It may turn your life around. But it may turn it into crap, too. <laughs> but, you know, it's just, it's just, an, and I remember one guy, Clembone, he taught you how to roll cigarettes. We didn't have cigarettes like your kids have today. He taught you how to t go to dances. He taught you how to smoke. He taught you where the places to go, where repute. But I never went there because I was a nice guy. But, you know, he taught us everything. He taught you how to shoot pool. And then he would say, now, when you go to a dance with the girl and you want to get her sexy, just blow in her ear. So I was sip, dipping, and blowing, sip, dipping, and blowing, and I wound up in Springfield, Missouri, and don't have any idea how I got there. That's that's bad. And I thought I was drugged. I had no money. The first time out of the barrel, I got lost my money, lost my date, lost everything. Didn't have nothing. And all I had was a dog tag, and I had a uniform. And you called the MPs, and at that time, if you called the MPs and you had no more money left and you were in the wrong place, you had to pay for them to pick you up. Anyhow, to make a long story short, I told them all my story. I don't remember nothing about this girl I was... And I went and I got it paid. We got paid $21 a month. I know one of you, nobody today would go to the Army for $21 a month. No way in the world. But I went there, I only had $11 in my pay, an envelope, you know, like these brown envelopes the bank gives you. And I wanted to know what happened. And the guy said, well, he said, the paymaster said, well, you better see the company commander. I said, I didn't take an allotment out. I don't know why this is here. He said, see the company commander. Uh, this is the company commander that helped me get to the penitentiary. But it was, he was a decent guy, really he was. And anyhow, I went to see him and I said, you know, I've been, I don't know why you got an allotment out of there. He said, someone filed for an allotment. He said, you know the weekend we brought you back last month? Well, you got married that weekend. I said, no way. <laughs> no way. He said, yeah. See, but at that time, in 1942, all you had to do was have a dog tag number, 3505-4594. You can't use it no more, so don't worry about it. <laughs> but anyhow, I, uh, I, I went around telling everybody at the camp what a, what a rotten trick that was. I don't know nothing about it. The government is all screwed up. And finally, I met a priest about four months later, and I, his name was Father Garcia. I'll never forget him. He said, I said, then what happened? He said, well, I'll look into it. I hate to tell you, but sometimes when I hear talk to a priest, they're going to look into it. It reminds me of our, some of our delegates. You tell them to do something in New York, they're going to look into it. They come back six years later and they're out of office. They didn't find nothing out yet. But, you know, I try to stop this big book from being printed, but they no one paid any mind to me. <laughs> I got some old ones. If you want to buy a classic one, last edition, I got a box. Which they're higher now. They're only $20 a book. <laughs> but you can't get them. Well, anyhow, what happened was I finally had that annulled, and she was a very patriotic American, and they found out she married five or six guys that night, you know. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, never, I never bothered to find out if I was first in line or last, because my luck, I'd have been the last guy in line, and things weren't like they are today, sanitary. <laughs> but, you know, it was just a terrible experience. So, anyhow, I got in some trouble with this company commander. I had hurt my knee on, a, on a, an obstacle course, and I was swelled up and swelled and we were marching full field pack with rifles and bayonets and all. And I fell off the side of the road because I couldn't go no more. My leg had swelled up right into the size of the pants. 
and I jumped on the back of a truck there, these trucks, the coop carrying trucks that the gate tailgate was down, you get on the back and you ride it back into I'll get end of March, you know. I jumped on that thing and he saw me jump up there and he came by and pulled me off and when he pulled me off I had that rifle and I just bust him right in the head with it. And that's not too nice. I didn't even think I needed the trial because I barely didn't get one. I walked in, I was guilty going in. And I got two years in the federal penitentiary. A nice kid that drank one time. You know what I brought with me? I brought those character defects I had on the corner. And I get so sick and tired of people telling me they're going to inventory this and there. Well, I'll talk about that a little later. We got more time. We ain't going nowhere. We got nowhere to 8 o'clock. <laughs> and everybody I know went out to eat. They just got back just in time. My friends, you know. They, they, they got to eat. You know, they got to eat. God forbid you should miss a meal 20 minutes apart. Oh, God. I'll tell you one thing, there's a hell of a restaurant up here, Alexander's. 22 bucks, you get ribs, they're great. Oh, they I can go because the hospital, I mean, the group pays for all my food. <laughs> I'm a sport. Anyhow, no, I'll kid inside. But, you know, and I went there, and when I was there, you go, we didn't have, like, cells, and we had barracks-like, and it was all separated with four guys in chicken wire, you know, and... Uh, and one day after about eight months, they came in and they said, you know, uh, we got an opportunity for some of you guys to get an honorable discharge. And, and if you want to join Armed Special Forces, which is, hey, we got them today, so they just one of the guys who got killed in it. Uh, so you go there and you get special training, you get maybe five months of special training, night fighting, using machetes and using and your, your bayonets. And, and you couldn't, we had to go into the island undercover late at night. And we had to find out and search out where they were sitting in. And if you come back alive, and he said, out of 12, your squad of 12 men, if, if eight come back out alive, that's a miracle. Now, every alcoholic, I wasn't an alcoholic then. I didn't even know I was an alcoholic until I got here. I was surprised. But what happened, no one thinks that they're going to become an alcoholic. And you sit in the bar, and the guy said, man, you're drinking too much. Look at that guy down there. He's worse than I'll ever be. And, you know, then one day you find a guy worse than that guy. And no one believes that's the myth of illusion that we're never going to get killed and we're never going to die and we're never going to, our hearts never going to explode with that crack that they use today. And we're never going to commit suicide. That's an illusion. I, I, somebody alluded to that today. I think it was Mike. How many friends just passed away? Should put a bullet in their mouth. And you know, I want to just say this while I'm on that thought. No one commits suicide when they're drunk. They commit suicide when they're sober because they stopped drinking here and back here is reality and nothing is put in between here and reality and someday you just can't face this real world again and they drink again and they drink again <coughs> that's what happens anyhow I, I went there and I went made two major invasions and I was in the South Pacific and then on a third one uh, we went in and I was next to my cousin Mikey and uh we were going in with flamethrowers and grenades. And, you know, it doesn't look any different today when I see what we got over there and what's the name of that country where Bin Laden's at, or Afghanistan or something. Those, they're buried in those caves like that, and when you get them out, if they come out, they stink. They've been in there. they got lice on them. And, you know, you just go in, and you know you got to go in. I was telling somebody today, you get to the point where you give it, don't give a damn if you're dead. If you could die, you just don't have to fight no more. It's all over with. And that's what happens to a lot of us. And, you know, 
we step, my cousin Mikey stepped on a landmine. He was about to murder her away from me. He got killed instantly, and I was blown up badly. And the first word out of my mouth, because I haven't talked to God in a long time, from when I was 13 years old, maybe, I said, did I get home hurt bad enough to go home to Corman? He said, you're going home, kid. You ain't going to be back no more. And I said, thank you, God. The first time I ever thought about thanking God. I was born a Catholic, and I was, you know, I, 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 I'm still a Catholic. Once a Catholic, always a Catholic. I don't know why people change. God is God, you know. God is God. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I was sent to Hawaii for surgery. I had two operations in Hawaii, then sent back to America, to Pasadena General, where the parade goes by and out. I was uh, commanded by the Army Hospital. And, uh, and I stayed there, and I had three more operations there. I had to learn to walk all over again. And uh, when I went to California, I fell in love with California. It was beautiful. You could smell the orange groves in Pasadena. Some of you from California know that's what it was like years ago. And you could see everything. The girls, the buildings were different colors and everything was beautiful. The streets were clean. The war was still on and soldiers were all over the city. Everything was going in the afternoon. There was everything happening. And I fell in love with it. And the girls were gorgeous. I got to say that. They were gorgeous. And you'll find out through my lead, I had trouble with neons and nylons. Big problem. <laughs> and I, I still can have some trouble today, you know, now that I saw that race car, you know. <laughs> but anyhow, I, uh, I stayed there and I fell in love. And I, when I was discharged, I didn't come home. And, you know, I got jobs. And I want to say one thing, because today I know a lot of people don't like to work, you see. If anyone here, don't take me offense because I don't know you who you are and I'm not speaking to you directly. But they like to get an SSI because they're an alcoholic. And a lot of them like to go to college because they, got, they, got, they get money for going to college when they're drunks. Most of them want to be brain surgeons, you know. <laughs> they got to still get a GED test to get in college. So, you know, we got a problem. But I worked all my life, all my life. I worked in a perfume factory in California and I worked in pressing records for RCA Victor. We had those old rubber records we press them there and burn your hands. And I worked. And one day, these people come in. They're all Italian. They come in from Cleveland, Buffalo, Chicago, New York, St. Louis, all over Youngstown. I don't want to leave you out, Bill Peak. And they come in, and they're all Italian. And my cousin, Bad Eye, was one of them. And he said to me, listen, go down here now and talk to this guy and tell him you want to work, go, be a, 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 an organizer. I didn't know what an organizer was. So I, had t I said, what do I do, Bad Eye? He said, just stand by a gate with a baseball bat and don't let no one get through. <laughs> well, that was not hard. You, you see, when you get to the point where I was at, nothing could kill me. I didn't believe anything could kill me. I'd gone through that war, blown up, and I did everything, and nothing could kill me. And I said, okay. So I went, and I got a gate to the, the, the 20th Century Fox. It was the farthest gate in the lot. Even the fire department didn't know the gate was there. And that, because my cousin Bad Eye put me there, so no one would give me a problem. But that went on for three months, the strike. And one day they kidnapped Cecil B. DeMille, and when they did that, the strike was all over. And, you know, when we went to get a job, we went to the Ambassador Hotel, and the guy said to me, what would you like to do for work at the studio? And who wanted to be a carpenter? Who wanted to be a bricklayer? Who wanted to be a grip pen? Who wanted to be an electrician? And I thought, well, labor was a Mexican border or something. So I said, I want to be a hairdresser. And this Italian guy, a little short guy, never forget about as white as this table, said to me, kid, them people are funny. Oh, don't worry about it. I know all about it. And I got to tell you why. So you don't think I'm funny. <laughs> Anyhow, I went to beauty school in 1940 for 30, 
30 days. I was, a buddy of mine was a hairdresser. I mean, a, uh, he was going to Elizabeth Carlo's dress to make desk designing school. And I met him. I didn't see him for a couple of months because I used to go, we loved dancing, you know. And uh, I said, Mike, where have you been? He said, oh, I'm going to dress designing school. He said, it's great there. So what's so great about it? He said, man, there's about 80 girls and two guys. I mean, now you add that up, you got pretty good odds. And he, I said, well, how about if I go join the dress design school? He said, no. He said, just uh, why don't you go to beauty school because there's 102 girls to three guys. And I figured even a buying chicken would get a kernel of corn once in a while. <laughs> so I went to beauty school for 30 days, and I went back to beauty school in 41 for 30 days, and I went back to beauty school in 42 for 30 days until I went to the Army. But, you know, I didn't learn nothing. All I did was just fool around. And when I got the chance to go work for 20th Century Fox, I was very fortunate. I was blessed. Some, most alcoholics fall into a lot of crap. In it's just lucky they get there. And I went there, and I had to start learning what I needed to learn. And Helen Hunt was very gracious. She took time to show me. And she said, you know, just, and I said, you know, my dad tells me that, too. Once you start doing something, if you do it continuously, if you're a tradesman, you're an electrician, carpenter, a plumber, you serve a journey, you're serving an apprenticeship, and one day you become a journeyman, and then everything falls right into place. No different than Alcoholics Anonymous. If you, when I come here, you had to serve that five-year apprenticeship, and then the work began in the sixth year. Today, they're here, and after 30 days, they're so goddamn smart, they don't know what day. And I'll tell you the worst part, they come out of a treatment center. They're all in love. Oh, God, they fall in love with the woman of their life. You know, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but let's get on that track now. And, and they, they got a husband at home, and she's got a wife. He's got a wife at home. But this woman understands me. I know about this. I went through it. And I know I didn't go to that treatment center. But I, I went through this stuff, you know. And, and, you know, all of a sudden there's so much in love. Now, if you've got treatment centers here, I think they hurt. Oh, you got some here. We don't have no more in Cleveland. And, uh, you know, and don't break them up because there's only two screwed up. If you break them up, this guy goes and finds another broad. She goes and find another guy. That's four screwed up. You can do that in four days. You got the whole treatment center screwed up. Everybody's in love. And the only one that suffers is the girl in six months that finds out she's pregnant and she doesn't know where to go. Welfare. That's where you go. You know, but it's sad. And anyhow, I, I went to work and I started working on starless hair for nothing. And just because I wanted to practice. And one day, sure, she promised me one day a constant repetition, practice, practice, practice. One day, everything fell into place. When you set a curl, it was an S, you formed an S, and you brush it out, and it would make that wave, you know. And we had to do this because if you shot a scene today, and then she had to have the same hairdo down the road three weeks later, coming out of a different part of this scene, they put these pictures together. They just don't run it all at once, you know. So it was assembled that way, and it had to be perfect. And, you know, it, it was just a... And it started to work. And one day I was doing bits and pieces on some of the stars, some of the movie stars here are not doing much. And one day she said, Cassini, I'm going to tell you something. I'll give you a breakdown. I'm putting your name on the screen. Once you, you, you can start working on movie stars. The first picture I worked in was Summer Centennial. Well, Linda Darnell and Jeannie Crane. And you know, when your name is on that screen, and you're a little dago like me that's cocky and got an attitude, and an ego, i got to say that too, you haven't got a prayer because you're flying high. You took off from ground level, like one of these planes that go straight up. Maybe when you take dope, you do that. Boom, straight up. <laughs> and, you know, I was there. I arrived. The war's still on. Man, I'm having I buy some nice clothes. I'm making more money now a week than my father makes in a month because we had still OPA seating. You couldn't make any more money, but I was in the studios. We got paid. And now I buy a car befitting to a nice Italian boy. 
I bought myself a 39 Buick Roadmaster with the wheels on the side, fender wells, you know, and white wall tires, long before they even knew about gangster white walls. We had them. And then you could drive down the street with the windows rolled up, and you could see some girls on Hollywood and Vine, they would get in the car and you tell them the damn fan belt just broke on that air conditioning unit. And I, I said, roll the windows down, we can stand it. But I didn't have no air conditioning, I was lying, you know. But it was the ego taking over. And then one day I'm standing there and I'm going to meet some guy at Corner Hollywood and Vine, Hank Martino. And he was in my hospital with me. And we we're going to meet and he don't show up. And doesn't show up. So I see two girls walk in the Bullyburg Swing Club on Corner Hollywood and Vine. The doors were open, there was no air conditioning. And you could hear the music coming out. And they had, they had, I don't know if you had them here, we had a, you have a merry-go-round. And we had a merry-go-round car wash. And right in the middle of the car wash were all the people that worked. Now, on this merry-go-round, the bar went around ever so low, like that same table turns up at the top of Niagara Falls and the one in, in Toronto, too. And the bartender stayed right in the middle, and they went around, and they, you'd put two and come by here. You always had a new bartender, but they put it on a check. And the King Cole trio was playing. It was that King Cole's family trio at that time. And them two girls walked in that bar, and I heard that music, and I saw that back bar, and I hadn't drank nothing but Coca-Cola since I got that time I got married that I didn't know about. And all of a sudden, I saw those girls go in. They smelled good. They looked good. And man, and there I went back to neons and nylons. And you know, when I think about it, let me just say this to you. When those men that got me into the studios were members of an organization better known as probably the Mafia. Maybe some of you heard about that often. And I want to just tell you today, if you leave Alcoholics Anonymous, that's just like leaving the Mafia. You're dead. You haven't got a prayer. I guarantee you, no one comes back here after 15 years of drinking and says, I had a wonderful time. I just want to tell you what bars I went to so you don't get too drunk, you know. <laughs> Anyhow, I, I started to drink and I didn't get instantly drunk. I didn't get drunk at all. I just felt comfortable. So for you guys that took that first drink and it did something for you, God bless you. Especially if you took it at four years old and remembered it, you know. <laughs> if I knew I was going to be up here, I'd have wrote notes, you know, I'd have journaled it, you know. <laughs> but anyhow, I, I just started drinking. And then one day these same guys came back about 1947 and asked me to head up a sting operation. I had to get the movie stars to be stung. If you saw movie Paul Newman, that was what would happen. And I got three movie stars and they went down for a couple of hundred thousand dollars. And there was no wire service out there. It was just chalkboard. Somebody was talking about it. To, maybe you were talking about you wanted to be like Stoney or some guy. But they were all those gangsters in there, you know, and they had that phony wire service. And the race may have been off 20, 10 minutes ago. But it just came up and they marked it on the board. You could hear it coming over the loudspeakers. They're calling it off in the back room, you know. And when these guys find out they lost all that money on that one race, they got crazy. And I said, don't bother with me. See these guys here? I didn't do nothing here. I just brought you here. And one guy starts arguing. The next thing you know, they're shooting phony bullets to the things you see from in the movies, the blood spurting on. And I said, you guys better get to Lake Tahoe and stay up there for six months until this thing clears off. And then my cousin Bat, I said to me, you better get back to Cleveland or you're getting in trouble. That's your fault. Well, I came back to Cleveland in the middle of the night on a train loaded with soldiers. And, man, I put that tearing look on. My father died. I got to come home. And they gave me whatever I wanted. I got back to Cleveland. I had the same thing. I didn't want authority. Now I'm drinking more. And I get in Cleveland. I'm drinking here. And I'm here for two weeks. And my father and mother don't like my behavior. And, they tell, and I go to New York. Who cares? And I went to New York. And I had an uncle up there that owned the theater, the bar and grill, and Piccadilly Circus Bar in Times Square. And he owned the tavern on the green. And he couldn't speak, hardly speak English, so you know where he made his money. And, you know, 
I said, give me a job. I can't get a union card here. So he sent me to see a woman, Helena Rubenstein, and she said, do you like to travel? And I said, yes, all but California because I have a disease and pollen affects me. I can't breathe. <laughs> well, that pollen would have been 10 years if I'd have got caught. <laughs> so she said, oh, don't worry about that. Get a passport. I got a passport, and now my life went to hell completely. When I got aboard those ocean-going liners, I had a beautiful uniform. Watch, they, I don't know if it sounds, love boat, you know, 10 times magnified that. And it was just great. And then I got on it, and the war was still just ending. And the people were traveling, they, got, they traveled the wives alone, and the husband would say, take a cruise and relax and, and just enjoy yourself. When you come home, we can get balanced back out together again. And they didn't know those little sneaky hairdressers standing behind that chair, just waiting. <laughs> now I'm going to tell you, well, she, was, she was a hairdresser, but I was a hairdresser, and I became a psychologist. And I would listen to these women talk. And I'm going to tell you, I put in until 1980-something as a hairdresser. And... You know, I know everything that, that happens to women. That's why I like them so well, you know. I'm not a fool. But, you know, I, I just couldn't, I, I got in trouble. I started drinking differently. I would drink every two and a half to three hours, four to six ounces of vodka. And I would stay level. See, that's the difference. An alcoholic gets level. When they take that other marching powder, they go straight to heaven, you know, straight up there. They hit the sea, boom, they bounce down, and they got to find another rock or something, what the hell they call it. But they don't stay level. Alcoholics get level. They mellow out. And one day they get so metal they fall asleep. You know, they get tired. They puke and they're ready to go again. But now this is getting me in trouble because my conscience is bothering me. Now we're going to start talking about things, alcoholics and arms, we don't hear any longer. We don't hear about conscience. We don't hear about self-respect. We don't hear about dignity. We don't hear about shame. We don't hear about none of that stuff today because it's now a new technical term. We give it a little Prozac and you become comfortable. You don't want to go through this crap. Anyhow, it's getting so bad that I can't stand myself. And then I rationalize, well, I'm not married. They're married. It's not adultery. No, that's good. And I went on my merry way, man, rationalizing, drinking. Every time I wake up in the morning, I talk a little twings in my conscience, drink a little more. To help and that guy said, you want to go to we're in England? You want to go see the Big Ben? Who the hell wants to see a clock, rusty clock, bong, you know? I right, let's go drink. And then all of a sudden, we're in a bar... The ship's in port, and they throw me out of the bar because I'm complaining they never paid their award debt. See, I got that mouth again, that dago mouth. And then I started again. I hate you, Englishman. And they said, we're not too fond of you. Get back to take it. Bobby's took you back to the ship. I know today they saved my life many times. Then I went to France. And then the France was just bad. I don't like Frenchmen. I'm sorry if there's any Frenchmen here. When I go to Montreal, I spoke at the Montreal's 50th anniversary, and those Frenchmen don't hate like Americans at all. They talk French and leave. They can speak better English than me. But over there, who wanted to see that Eiffel Tower? These guys had cameras, everything. I don't want to see no rusty piece of iron. <laughs> Let's drink. Let's get on with it, baby. I don't want that crap. I got in trouble there, and I got in trouble in Italy. Now, when you get in trouble in Italy, you're Italian, you got a problem. <laughs> Anyhow, in December 1949, about four days before Christmas, I shipped docked in New York City on Pier 48. And I come off that ship, and I said, I'm going home. Maybe my mother can slow down my drinking. I didn't want to quit. Don't get me wrong. I had no intentions of quitting. And I had found the same thing. Same mother and father. They were telling me what to do. They forgot I was gone all those years. I handled myself. But anyhow, I, I didn't know what to do. And I'm back here in Cleveland, and, and on January the 1st, I uh, met a guy. And I went to, to work for a guy named Joe Patero, who was at that time 
one of the first guys of building beauty salons, chain salons. I was the first guy to work for him. And in two years, I'd become very successful with him. We were doing TV shows. And in 1952, I was, I was living high on a hog, but I was drinking like a hog, you know. And I was drinking the same way every two and a half to three hours of vodka. And I started to develop a puking habit, you know. I don't know why I was puking. It was probably some fish I ate or something. But, you know, it started. And, you know, I was just having a great time. I really loved being a hairdresser. I did. It was, if one of my kids could have been a hairdresser, I'd have been happy. Because they'd had a hell of a life if <laughs> they behaved. But, you know... I decided that I'm going to do something. So I said I'm going to build a beauty salon of my own. And in 1950, 51, I think, 50, end of 50, I signed the lease to build a beauty salon in some godforsaken part of Mayfield Heights, which was wilderness at that time. And I went to the bartender downtown. I said, Augie, I'm opening up in about six months. And he said, Doc, I'm going to tell you something. You know, if you drink like you're doing now, Forget about that beauty salon because you're going to lose it. I said, he said, you better do something. So I said, I'll figure what I'm going to do. I'm smart. So I figured I'll get married. So I found an Italian girl. She was a model of one of the million department stars, a millinery model. And she, she used to have those at that time, hat models, you know. And anyhow, I told him I'm going to get married. And he said, you're sick. <laughs> I got a lot of guys, if they think their drinking would stop, if they got married, I could line them up for you. Well, we got married. She married me because I was exciting. And all of a sudden, the excitement started to kill her. So 14 months later, after we were making all that money, she said, I want a divorce. I said, good. Now I can drink the way I want to drink, come home when I want to come home, and I don't have to hear your mouth. And she said, I want to tell you something. You're a drunk, and I didn't make you a drunk. You drank every drink yourself. And now I don't know what to do, so I'm starting. Now my mother's picking on me. She's got these religious people she's going to cure me with. I went to Catherine Coleman in Pittsburgh. I don't know if you ever heard of her here or here. She's dead now a few years. She had reddish hair, and she was a healer. And no offense, I went there with her to please my mother. I got dipped, and I got bopped, and nothing happened. <laughs> and then we start on this merry-go-round. Then they come, Ernest Angel, and I, Rex Humbard is building this big cathedral in Akron. And she, well, we'll go here to hear Rex Humbard. He's good. I see him on television. He just come out. And I said, okay, we'll go. So we go to Rex Humbart, and I got dipped and bopped over there, and nothing happened. So if you're here today waiting for something to happen to you, the only thing going to rub off on you is old age, or the dirt on the chair that didn't wipe off before you got here. You don't get Alcoholics Anonymous by osmosis. It takes an action of some sort. Anyhow, then I went to see Billy Graham at the Cleveland Stadium, and I'm up in the second tier, and you had to walk down to get saved. Now I'm walking down and my mother's just beaming because she figures Billy Graham is going to do the job. <laughs> now I want to tell you something. I had no more intentions of getting sober then than I have winning the lottery today. Fat chance. So I, I got dipped and bopped. Guy come over there and he's going to come to my house and talk to me. I, I said, no, I, I fine. I made the altar call. My mother's happy. I'm happy. I'm cured. <laughs> and I didn't. I was drinking again. 1950. Let me get a date here. Now, wait a minute. I got married in 1952. 1954, my uncle came into my house, and he said, Doc, he says, you're drinking too much. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I'm watching you. You're drinking too much. I said, he said, if you ever want help, I'll help you. Now, I didn't know nothing about 
A&A or WAPA or what the hell it is. And he never said nothing to me. He just said, I'll help you. And my uncle came into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1941. Now, I want to tell you people who are here on a free ride. There's a lot of free rides in these programs today. You got them gift certificates. That's a free ride. Take advantage of it. Take advantage of it. Don't drink even if your ass falls off for six months. Pick it up and put it back on. But don't drink. And my uncle never mentioned the word Alcoholics Anonymous to me because when I came to AA, you had to be invited or you had to ask and pick up that 25-pound telephone and say, I need help. And people just don't want to surrender. And everything you read in Alcoholics Anonymous from the 12 and 12, anything in the big book, you must surrender first to win. We had a guy by the name of John Part, a professor in the Paradox out of Akron, and I used to meet him when I went to Akron University, and he said, you have to surrender to win. Where else do you go to surrender to win? Nowhere. Nowhere. Think about it. Muhammad Ali never surrendered to win. He just fought to win. These other guys get knocked out, and they don't surrender. They just get knocked out. And that's what happens to the alcoholic. And you've got to give it away to keep it. Whoever heard of that thing? Well, it's got to be nuts, you know. What do you got to give it away to keep it? And you've got to suffer to get well. Well, everyone here who's here today suffered to get here. If you're here because you just drank a little too much tulip squeeze and orange pop, and you got a stomach ache, and the judge says you're an alcoholic, let me just tell you one thing. I went through this, so I may offend somebody here. The judge has no right to call you an alcoholic. And if you read your big book, it said, the only person who can call you as an alcoholic is yourself. Do you know there's labeling girls out there for things they've never done, bad things, and they'll live the rest of their life and suffer with that because people are talking. See? If you're not an alcoholic, you can't become an alcoholic until you drink, and you drink enough to cross that line. Now, I know people introduce themselves as alcoholic and addicts. I want to tell you, when I got sober, I lived in an attic, so I know what they're talking about. <laughs> Anyhow, it got, it got so bad, and then I figured I, 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 I'll get married again. Well, in church, it didn't work. So I get married again, and I find an Irish girl. I got three beauty salons open now. And she don't, I thought she would be the ideal match. She was Irish, you know, and Irish liked to drink. I figured, how the hell could I miss with this one? And she worked for me. So I take her out, and at 10.30, I bring her home, because she didn't want to drink. She just wanted to eat supper and go home. Well, that went on for a while. And then one day, we ran away and got married. And I loved her. I really did. This is 1950. Wait a minute, 55, I ran away with her, yeah. Anyhow, we went to get married, and when I went to meet my father-in-law, he watched me drinking vodka out of the water glasses. And he said, kid, you're going to blow them three beauty salons you got. You're going to lose your wife, and you can kill yourself. He said, if you want any help with that drinking, let me know. And I said, go see my Uncle Tommy in Collinwood. He'd join the Holy Roller. You can start your own Holy Roller Church, because they were just coming up that Holy Roller stuff. And he walked away from me. My father-in-law got sober in 1939, the week after the big book came out. Never once told me about Alcoholics Anonymous. And let me say one more thing to you. Maybe John alluded to this. You cannot educate anybody into sobriety. It takes a total surrender to know that you're sick and you don't want to live and you don't want to die. And I tell you that and I'll talk to you later if you think I'm lying to you. And I'll show it to you where it's in the book. That big book has never lied. 
The big book is absolute truth. Stopping drinking is the easiest thing you're going to do. After a couple of weeks, you're sober. You're dried out. You may have diarrhea for a while. Who cares? What the hell? <laughs> Anyhow, my drinking prescripts are bad. I was doing 176 weeks of TV of my own show, and I built eight beauty salons. I had three children born in that marriage, and I remember them being born. Never gave them a bottle, never changed a diaper, never did nothing. And my father-in-law never mentioned Alcoholics Anonymous to me because it was a jewel. People would come from Columbus to go to Akron to get sober. People would come from Toledo to go to Akron to get sober. The guy that brought AA to Toledo got sober in Dr. Bob's house. The people that came from Cleveland, Clarence Snyder, and all those other gentlemen that I met in my lifetime, they went and they were driving those old broken down cars. They didn't have the cars like we got today. You could fall into a hundred meetings in Columbus over here without dirtying your clothes by rolling down the street. And what do we do? We don't like the speakers, they talk too long, this is too bad. We need no smoking, no smoking room they ate because they, their meetings are outside the buildings now. Freezing their ass up, you know. And then when the meeting's over, they're out there again. Where's the fellowship? We've lost it. We've lost it. You may not like what I'm saying, but that's okay. I'm going home to one plus I got 20 guys here. You know. What I mean? <laughs> Anyhow, one day I was left in Las Vegas and I blew a lot of money that I shouldn't have blown and I had to pay it back and there was nobody from Cleveland there I could talk to that day. And they said, you got to get the money. So what happened, I finally wrote, wrote out a check. It was federal withholding tax. And I don't know if you're in business, but if you use that their money, you got a problem. If it isn't there by the next time your payment is due. And I used that check, $15,000. Now when I come back to Cleveland, I'm in trouble. The guy left me there, this Italian road builder, and I hated him. See, somebody mentioned hate today. I don't know who it was, one of the speakers. Italians do not resent, because we didn't know what resentments were. We just go hate, and if hate isn't enough, we go to vendettas. Very, very simple. It's easy. It just passes right on through, you know? And I, I hated him. And one day in 1961, in July, he walked into my beauty salon in Eastgate, Mayfield Heights, and he said, come on, Doc, I want to buy you a drink. Now, I needed the drink. I needed to drink, and I want to tell you one thing. If you're not a real alcoholic, you will never understand the compulsion. You may have the mental obsession, but until you take the first drink, the compulsion doesn't start. I don't know if my book is different, so excuse me, maybe it was an older book. <laughs> but, you know, I come around, and, and I woke up on August 31st. I went to three meetings. I heard about Sister Ignatia gives you all you want to drink. I heard if they want you're in there and they can't take you out, even if you committed a crime and she used to never let them come out, she'd have the police stand by the door, finish her six days and five nights there. And then she, I heard about liver trouble. So on August 31st, I woke up that morning, totally swelled up, couldn't put my clothes on, couldn't put my pants on, nothing fit, had to tie ropes through my loopholes. And you know what happened? I called the doctor and she said, he'll be here at 1.30. Called my wife and said I couldn't come to work, I didn't feel good cut my tennis shoes so I could get my swelled up feet in them. And I called and went to this doctor and he said, Don, he said, you got to go to here in Rhode Hospital because you got liver trouble. And I said, I can't go to the hospital because this is Labor Day weekend and I, I've just got to go make payroll. We made payroll by hand then. So I had over 100 people working for me at that time, eight beauty salons, a school downtown. And he said, well, I'm going to fill a prescription for a lady in the other room. And when I come back, I want an answer from you. Or I'm going to call your wife. So when he came back, he said, what is you going to do? And I opened, I said, I got a sponsor. 
Now, I don't know where I got that sponsor word from. I'll tell you where I got it. In those three meetings while counting seating tiles and floor tiles, I heard that word and it stuck up here. I told you you got the greatest computer in the world. And I said, I got a sponsor. He said, call your sponsor and have him take you to his hospital. We had small hospitals in the neighborhood then, 10, 12 beds, small hospitals. And he said, I said, I'll call him. I called my sponsor and I said, where's Ted? She said, he, I said, I'm at Dr. Bash's office. He wants to talk to Dr. your husband. She said, I haven't called you right back. And I uh, waited and pretty soon the call came back and it was him on the phone. Talked to the doctor and the doctor said he's got to get in the hospital now because he may not make it. And he told him how bad I was and he said, I'll call you right back. The sponsor told him and the sponsor called Sister Ignatian. She said, bring him in. And I tell you one thing, if I ever think I'm going too far for Alcoholics Anonymous, my sponsor drove from Dunkirk, New York, to Cleveland, Ohio, on old Route 20, because there's no interstates at that time. And if I leave where I live now, it takes me two and a half hours to get there on interstates, 90. He drove all that way home. And they were told at that time, because I was told it too, when, I, when you sponsor somebody, you're charged with their life. Let's not give them a deluded message. I was with a girl last night. She said she had did her fourth step in about four months, six months, you know. But it took her two years to get rid of it. And that's like going home to a refrigerator full of rotten food. And you know it's in there. And you know if you open the door, you can see it. But you're not going to clean it out. Not until you're ready. Anyhow, I was brought into Rosary Hall. And the minute I hit Rosary Hall, I was laying in the gurney there. And Sister Ignatia come in and she said, Call the Venice priest in Father Winchester. His name was in the good old time. It was Dr. Bob. And Father Winchester gave me last rites, and I went into a coma and had a out-of-body experience. I was immediately taken to this third floor, which was this, at that point was the intensive care unit. And in there, they tapped me five times, took out seven liters of water or seven gallons, what the hell ever it was. And they tapped me, and I went down. I became like a guy from the Baton March, big stomach. I went down from 176 pounds down to about 114. And I was fed in a Venus leaf for three weeks. And they were praying every day in Rosary Hall in the chapel that I would make it. And the giants of Alcoholics Anonymous would come in and talk to me, and I thought they were all full of crap. One guy said, what's an alcoholic? Always an alcoholic. You can't go back to social drinking. I thought he was smart because he came out of Kingsbury Run. He's one of the guys that walk out alive. And But, you know, he learned that in the big book, I found out later. And people would tell you things, and I finally learned how to... They finally told me I can go down and say the rosary. And when I went down, they would wheel me down, and they would talk to me. And these were the giants of Alcoholics Anonymous, some of the first hundred men. My uncle, my father-in-law, Harry Ryan, all these guys. And these guys were giants. And you know, sister would say, these guys are, this is big business for them. And this is not talking about money, we're talking about saving lives. And that, them men were dedicated to saving lives. We had no counselors. They were our counselors. And I went one, finally one day, a guy's wheeling me down. Sister Ignatia comes up to my room. It's in October now, end of October. And she said, you can go out of here now and finish off your drunk because your attitude stinks. Or she said, you can go downstairs and go to Rosary Hall and never come back again because we only allowed him one time. And, you know, we had 75% recovery when I went through Rosary Hall. I want you to think what you've got today. Something is missing someplace. Anyhow, I, I said, I, she said, well, tell me in the morning. And she turned around. I said, I'll show you, you little penguin. And she said, what would you say? I said, I'll talk to you in the morning, sister. <laughs> I went down to never take another drink again. 
And I went, I, when I came out of that hospital, I had no clothes to fit me. My sponsor bought me a wash and wear shirt. And at that time, everybody wore sport jackets and ties to me. If you went to Rosary Hall, she'd give you a tie to wear, Sister Ignatia. And I hated everything because I signed the power of attorney and gave my wife eight beauty salons, a home, three children, and everything. And it was all gone. And I didn't know where she went. When I got out of the hospital, she was gone. Everything was gone. So, you know, I, I had no... My book says you don't have to have your wife, you don't have to have children, you don't have to have a job. All you got to do is want to quit drinking. Those are the things that want the desire to quit drinking. And, you know, I went to meetings, I went to meetings, I went to meetings. I, always, I didn't like women speakers because they were planting orange trees and bird houses and all that crap. I had one guy, I fell in love with him. He came out of Louisville, Kentucky. He was with the Associated Sports Writers paper. And he, would, he got his wife back after 10 years of sobriety. And I said, well, maybe she'll come back. I'm going to tell you, it's 40 years, and I don't want to hear from nothing about her. <laughs> Anyhow, I come out of that place, and I had the IRS after me. Everybody wanted me. And one day I walked in there, and I said, Sister Ignatia, I'm going to federal court today. I said, and I gotta, I'm going to go to jail with this money. And she said, oh, don't worry about it. And she, told, she said, gave her a card. And the card said, pray daily. God's easier to talk to than most people. And she said, Don, where you're going, that may be your only salvation. And now I knew I was going to jail. <laughs> so when I got there, I was standing in front of that bench, and she told me before I left, don't you dare tell them that you're a member of AA, because I don't want to hear about that. What do you think I tell that judge? He said, we got to get to say, Your Honor, I've been sober over a year or so. He said, I don't care if it's over 25 years. It was Judge Cassidy. And he said, see me in the back of the chambers. And he gave me the opportunity to pay back all that money. And I paid back the federal internal revenue. I paid them off the last check in 1980. Paid back a lot of money. They, they'd like to double up. Their interest is better than the mafias. <laughs> Anyhow, I, I started to go, and my co-sponsor committed suicide. And she owned Valley Ford truck sales in Cleveland. My sponsor went back to drinking, and I had to find a new sponsor, and some of you people know my sponsor. And he was a big guy then, 340 pounds. He said, get in the car. My name is Don, not get in the car. So we'd start to drive, and, and my nickname was Doc, and everybody knew that. So we drive, and we're going to Kentucky. Oh, what the hell? We drive all night to get to Gethsemane. I don't want to hear nothing about God, because God, everything was gone. And he, they're talking, their smart cigars are filled up to smoke. You, you get, I get the card out and scrape the nicotine off the windows by the time you got to Kentucky. And it, it was just living, you know. And all of us lived to be over 77 years old. Isn't that funny? None of us died of lung cancer. I mean, think about it. Maybe they didn't have Prozac then. Anyhow, <laughs> they, uh, it got so bad that uh, I went up there and there was a priest there. And this little priest was skinny, small, and one day I, I walk in there at 9 o'clock in the morning, and that's my clock, but I got time on this one. I said it yesterday. <laughs> so anyhow, we're going to wind this down pretty soon because I want to take these kids out to eat. Okay. Anyhow, so this little priest is sitting there, and he said, Hey, I understand you're not happy in AA. And I walked up, and he said, Sit down here. So I looked, sat down, and he said, I understand you're not happy. I said, you wouldn't be happy either. God took everything away from me. He said, what did he take away? I said, children, homes, cars, eight beauty salons, and a school. He said, let me tell you something, buddy. And he knocked his hand on that side. He said, you didn't 
they didn't take nothing away from you. So if you're here today and you feel like you're a victim, no one took anything away from you. You gave it away. To drive an automobile is not a right. It's a privilege. You are not a victim when the cop arrests you. You are a violator. <laughs> Your wife doesn't leave you with one drunk. Your wife don't leave you because you're drunk once. She leaves you because it's a continuous thing. I went to a meeting the other night. A guy from Texas is beyond his wife. He went to see his father, 92 years old. Someone put a bottle of vodka, and his wife accused him of drinking. She left, and she went back to Texas. I said, how long are you sober? He said, two and a half months. I said, how many times have you been in A? Seven times. Since, since nine years you've been married. I said, what makes you think she believes you? And then she said to me, were you powerless? Did you have a power? And I said, I think I heard about a light bulb. or a light bulb. And he said, no. He said, if you were God, would you want a dog to urinate on you? And then he said, Did you have, was your life unmanageable? I said, kind of. Then he went through the litany. All I lost, you know. He said, that's step one. You can't. Step two, he said, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. For you people who have been here, and have gone out and drinking again, has it got any better? Think about it. And he said, if you go back to drinking now after you've been sober almost a year, you're nuts. So the second step means you're a nut. And I said, wait a minute, I got papers from Cleveland. He said, I'm, gonna, I'm not crazy. He said, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about it. If you go back and drink today, you're nuts. And then he said, third step, you make a decision to turn your life and your will over to the care of God as you understood them. Not understand. You sit up here and listen to people read that, and they say, understand. It's understood and it's written in squiggly writing in the book. And it's understood with the faith of a mustard seed or the faith of a child. Did you ever have a child who stand at the table by you and they see you coming, they jump right in, they expect you to catch them. That's the faith of a child. That's what a sponsor does. He's there to help you. He's there to help you. And then he said, now, he said, after that, he said, and listen closely now, because I'm going to tell you something that you may not know. Take this one to the bank and you can cash it in. It says, being convinced after A, B, and C, at once, maybe, maybe the words are not in the right order, we proceed into a fourth-step inventory, which is the cause of our reason for drinking. We do not inventory alcohol. We inventory fears, sex, and, and uh, resentments. And there's three things everybody strives for in their life. They strive for security, social, and sex. That's what the whole life of America, the world is based on. Think about it. And he said, now he said, I'm going to tell you something. You got that inventory, write it down, see me in the morning. So I went upstairs, I wrote down what I thought. And he said, now take that to one of the priests here or a monk and talk to him about it. So I, I didn't know. I talked to that monk. I told him everything I wanted to tell him, everything I did. I told him how he said, forget about it. Forget about Molly, Polly, and Dolly. Just tell me you're a slut, you're a luster. You know? <laughs> I, I told him I cheated out of this, I cheated. He said, forget about it. You're a thief, that's all. <laughs> I don't want to know how many times you did this, how many times you did that. But I had it all there. And I told this monk, and this monk just looked at me, and nothing happened. And I said, well, let me tell him some more shit. That didn't really happen. I'll make it interesting. <laughs> and, you know, he, he, I, I did that, and I went and did what they told you to do, wait an hour and a half. And I'm sitting out there at the McSemi. They had big bulls out there, and I'm watching them run through there. 
And, you know, during the course of that time, I lost a, a ring up there in that room, and I said a prayer, because everybody has a little belief. And I said a prayer. I said, St. Anthony, St. Anthony, please come around. There's a ring lost. It's got to be found. And I found that ring when I went back to the room. So with a little bit of belief, started me on the road of faith. Started me on the road of faith. Faith doesn't come to you overnight. Nor does sobriety come to you overnight. I know a lot of people knew within a year they got it all put together, man. They got this thing locked. They don't even need to come around. They float right out of the top. And sometimes old people float out of the top, too. Happens. But, you know, I started to believe and things started to work. And I started going to meetings and I did a lot of things in Alcoholics now. It's too late. Some of you people who know me know how much I've done in AA and I'm not going to tell you about it. And the only thing I want to say, one thing, before I close with something else. I, <laughs> I've done one of the things that I've left a mark in this world and Walter here can tell you that we bought, I bought Dr. Bob's house with five other people. And it is now a foundation. It's the only place in the world, if you've never been there, that you can go and sit in anywhere that Bill and Bob formulated the 12 steps at. It will be the only place in the world because everything else is torn down. And I'm damn proud that we took a, put a sign to our houses on to raise some funds for that house. Have I given enough to Alcoholics Anonymous? I could never repay it. I could never repay it. I've had ups and downs like that. The end of that serenity prayer says I've had good days and bad days. And two years ago, I'd taken my son. We were going to go to Italy. And this is a kid that got in trouble in jail, smoking. He had a pipe full of marijuana in the car, and he was in jail in Valdesta, Georgia. Now, if any people are from there, they just hate Yankees. <laughs> and they're not too friendly. And he called up. He said, Dad, I'm in jail. He said, they found that crack pipe, the cigarette pipe, or opium, marijuana. What the hell they smoked in that pipe? And I said, you know, you were smart enough to get your little ass in there. Now, let's see how smart you are to get out. He said, Dad, these people. I said, just get yourself out. And I let him stay there 22 days. And I wasn't going to get him out. No way. You've got to learn. Some days you've got to close a lot of doors before they open up on the other side. And then I want to tell you, my one son, I got my children back in 1973. I haven't seen them all those years. One boy was sick paranoid, schizophrenic, and for every year until 1980-something, 87, that boy did six to seven months in a mental hospital. So if you think you're hurting and you're moaning and you're pissing off, screw you, pal. You've got a chance to cure your own self. You're the only physician that can clear you, help, get you sober. My son can't get a physician. He's got to take medicine for the rest of his life. And I wouldn't sign the papers because I didn't trust God. I believe that everybody in this room right here today believes in God, but how many of you really trust him? How, think about it. How many of you really trust him? Not too many. Until the chips are down. In 2000, I called my son. We were going to go to Italy, and I was going to show him part of Italy. I'd been there, and he had been there once, so we were going to go back to where my father came from. And I think it was in March or something like that. He called up, and he's screaming that, Screw God, screw this, screw that. What's the matter, Donald? He said, I woke up the other morning. I thought I had a stroke. I went to the doctor, and they found not a stroke. He said, so I had an MRI. And he said, I was getting paralyzed on my left side. And he said, they found a tumor on the brain. 
and he said, the doctor I said, I have three months to live. This kid was screaming, he hated God, and I want to tell you something, I, I've been thinking about it all this week because it's the holidays, you know, and I didn't know what to do, and I got on the plane and went to Atlanta. And he's screaming, and I'm holding him, he's sobbing. Think about it, if you knew you were 39 years old and you were going to die in three months, how are you going to take it? But you're gambling with your life every next time you go out and get drunk. You could be the next fatality on that road, or even kill someone and send you to the penitentiary. I'm not trying to scare you, but I really don't give a damn for you to get scared. People got to die so somebody has to live. That's what they told us. And Sister Ignatius would say, if this guy got drunk, better him than you. Take it for a power of example. In 40 years, I've had a lot of powers of example. I went out and did it. So I stayed with him for two weeks that time, and I came back a week and a half later, and he's still angry, and now he's just angry. The time is running out, and he stayed, he lived for nine months. And one day he said to me, Dad, how do you find faith? And I said, Don, it's a process, but you've got to surrender to it. You've got to surrender to this power greater than yourself. And he said, I'm dying. Do you I said, I understand it, Donald. So I left some prayer, pa papers there, and it was a serenity form in a long form, serenity prayer. And when he read that serenity prayer, he called me back two weeks later. And he said, Dad, he said, I think I'm accepting death. And he said, I, then I went back to there to pick him up and take him home to say goodbye to my family. And he was so sick and painful, and we had to get an airliner to stop in Cleveland to take him back. And you know, it is not easy. It is not easy. I've been here long enough that I sponsored people, and when the son died, the mother would say, I'm glad they're dead now. I know where they're at. How do you like that? How do you like that? That's a mother talking. That's tough. That's tough. And if you've done that to your parents, I should say make amends now while they're living. Don't give me this crap. I'm going to write a note and put it on their grave and tear it up. Tell them now. But if you're going to get drunk again, don't tell them because you'll only hurt them again. It's like getting scabs on your hand and then pull the scab off and you watch the pus run again. That's what you're doing. This program works. And I took my son back and he passed away in a hospice in Naples on November 19th, 10 days before his 40th birthday. And you know something? You let him go home to God. You just, you people who've harmed your family and they die while you don't see, you're the ones that cry the hardest because you harm them the most. And I don't mean to tell you something that's not true. Your conscience will tell you that. I watch these Italian people that cry, that's crying at these funerals because they screwed up their parents so bad. Tell them now if you're sober, and you're going to stay sober. Make your amends now. And start making them with your mother and your father. And make amends to yourself first, because you're the one to treat yourself so rotten. And you know, this program works. It works. And my son passed away, and he's buried in Naples, Florida, and his body's in the ocean. And there's a bench there, if you're ever in Naples, and he's got his name on it. A bench you can sit on and watch the waves come in. And it isn't easy. It isn't easy. But you know something? You just get back in the trenches and get back in the AA and do what you're supposed to be doing. And I'm very blessed because I travel sometimes 25 times a year speaking at conferences. As I left Rosary Hall, this I've got to say before I close, Sister Ignatia grabbed my hand and she said, Don, I'm giving you something now. You take this with you. And if you ever decide to drink, I want you to bring it back to me because that's where it belongs. And it was a sacred heart.
Everybody got a sacred heart that left her, and everybody got this book, Confidence in God. And she called me Mr. Cassini when I left that hospital at the end of October. Gave me some dignity already. Let's not tear ourselves down. Let's start to listen if you're new. Keep your mouth shut because you don't know a damn thing. <laughs> you know, what you have, I had one time, and I don't want it no more. <laughs> and this is Sister Ignatia when at the funeral I was there with Bill. I was an honorary pallbearer, and Lois signed this. I'll put it up for sale one day. <laughs> but, you know, I've been very blessed. And Alcoholics Anonymous saved my life. Saved my life. Everything I own today, I owe to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I will tell you this. I have enough money to last me the rest of my life if I die before February 3rd. <laughs> Just the cute. And I got a raise this month. But, you know, in closing, there's a, mem a pamphlet. Some pamphlets, somebody mentioned our pamphlets. Maybe it was Mike or somebody. We got some great literature in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I don't see it displayed. You know what I mean? This is my big book from my trunk. Something happened. There was no big book here. And you don't start a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous without a big book on the podium. I thought this was a Rotary Club. <laughs> Anyhow, Pat, I'm sorry, but <laughs> if I had seen it the first time, that's it. But I want to close with this from a pamphlet called The Members I View. It's from the Bible, John the Baptist's language in Herod's prison. And he said, go find my cousin Jesus and see if he's the Messiah because I want to get out of prison. So the men start walking through Jerusalem, and there's Je Jesus walking along, talking to people in parables by the river. And he said, are you the Messiah? And he said, yes, I am, maybe. But tell, he said, tell John only what you've seen and what you've heard. And tell him through the longest day and the darkest night the gospel was being carried through Jerusalem. So they're walking along. There's a guy laying on a cot, and Jesus said, pick up your cot and walk into the river. The man dragged that cot in the river, and when he came out, he walked. And you know why he walked? He took an action. Action is the magic word. He believed what he told him. And if you've got a good sponsor, you'll believe what he tells you. Because if he's a sponsor, he should know what he's talking about. And if you're here over six months and your sponsor hasn't told you to take an inventory, find another sponsor because they will kill you. That's the God's honest truth. You know... People don't understand that. We are carrying a mess rather than a message. And then he said, the blind man, he told him to put mud on his eye, and when you walk out of the river, to wash the mud off and you'll see. And you know what? He saw. And you know why he saw? Because he took an action. Action is the magic word in Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you tell me I'm willing, well, I'm going to tell you, willingness without action is a fantasy. You can take that to the bank. If you don't do nothing, nothing happens. I don't win the lottery, you know why? Because I don't buy lottery tickets. <laughs> Proof of that. I may try one day. Maybe I'll get it. And the third one, the lepers had to go into the water. And they, if you ever saw lepers, their skin's falling off and that. Maybe some nurses here know what it's like. A bear burns soon when it burns the water. And, you know, I, I was going to tell you, in Malachi, they have a leper colony where the people are in Alcoholics Anonymous. And we went there. The guy whose name was Walter O'Keefe. He was a movie star in AA for many, good many years, come from the West Coast. And we went there when we were in Hawaii at a conference. And these guys, their eyes light up, you see. And somebody mentioned through the eyes of Alcoholics Anonymous, you can see them getting sober. They get sobered through their eyes. They stop looking at their shoe tops and they sober up. And these lepers all went into the water and they were cleansed. 
And when they come out, there's a direct correlation what happened to them then, and they ate. Every ten of those ten who came out of that water were grateful. Only one had gratitude and came back and helped Jesus. We have that today. Tenfold. There are more leaving than are staying. You've got to have gratitude. And some of these old gentlemen have been on here a long time. It takes guts, God, and gratitude to stay sober. And if you're asking me what I've seen over 40 and a half years in Alcoholics Anonymous, I've seen the, the lame walk, I've seen the sick get well, and I've seen the blind see. And through the longest day and the darkest night, the good news of Alcoholics Anonymous is still being carried the only way it will ever be carried, one drunk to another. Thank you very much. <laughs>